Well, it is good to be back with you all. It's been a few weeks since I've been in the pulpit. And we are about to undertake a, a new short series. We're going to take a short um, intermission between the act of First Kings and the act of Second Kings before we press on with the, the history of Israel. We're going to be looking at these next uh, eight weeks. We're going to be looking at sins that appear in the church and ways in which we can deal with them, mortify them, and push ourselves on to sanctification. If you have your sermon notes, you'll notice that the back actually has something on it this week, and that will lay out for you, give you an idea of the types of sins we're going to be looking at. Covetousness, anxiety, thanklessness, lack of generosity, worldliness, bad speech, judgmentalism, and pride. These are not the top list of sins that we might describe if we were talking about red light districts or Congress or areas of our nation. They're specifically areas in which the church can fall prey to sin. So, uh, having said that, we're going to look firstly at uh, covetousness and our text. This is a little bit of new territory for us. Um, We're not going through a book for these weeks. Uh, So I have two texts that I want you to have in the forefront of your mind. The first is Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. The second is Colossians 3 and verse 5. Let us hear now the word of the Lord. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything. That is your neighbor's. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we we pray, O Lord, this morning that you would convict us of your word. And yet, Lord, we pray that you would encourage us by what you have done in the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask, O Lord, this morning that you would conform us to his image, that you would make us more like Jesus. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, oftentimes, we can put on appearances, can't we? We put on disguises. We've been looking at some incidents in 1 Kings of what happens when you put on disguises. Do you remember the short phrase that I asked you to remember about disguises? Disguises, bad. Disguises, they're just bad. You remember we had King Jeroboam said, I think I have a good idea. I'll disguise my wife and send him to the prophet. Bad idea. Ahab says, well, I'll be safe. I'll disguise myself so I'm not the king. No, thank you. But we see that in our own lives and in the church. You see, part of the problem with disguises, with deception, with superficiality is that it's impossible to maintain that level of deception for a long period of time. One of my favorite old black and white movies is a story from the French Revolution. And the hero is called the Scarlet Pimpernel. 
Perhaps you know this movie. He goes throughout most of the movie with a very full disguise. It's not just a a mask and a cape, although he wears that when he's off on adventure. When he's in ordinary life, he tries to present himself as the most foolish, careless man you could ever expect. The last one that would be a hero, he's more concerned about the color of his necktie than what's going on in the world. But the problem is, is that his main adversary in the final chapter is not fooled. You see, he can't keep up the disguise that long. What I'd like us to look at this week and in weeks to come are shedding our own disguises in the church. Because if we're honest with ourselves, you and I feel more comfortable in those disguises in front of other Christians. Rather than seeking the Lord and seeking to be sanctified, we can often try and fool others and even ourselves. And I want us to look first here at this Tenth Commandment, covetousness, which is respectable idolatry. And that is meant to jar you. Hopefully you've gotten that already from Paul's passage in Colossians chapter 3. What I want us to see about about covetousness is first of all that it's a heart sin. It's a heart sin. And then after that I want us to see that it is a very dangerous sin. It's a heart sin, but it's also a dangerous sin. But perhaps even more important than that, it is an idolatrous sin. And we need to be aware of that. And then finally, I'd like to give us some directions as to how we can fight this. How we can have hope. So let us look then first at the fact that it is a heart sin. We find out that covetousness is something that takes residence in the heart first by looking at the nature of the command. Now, if you look here at Exodus 20, verse 17... You read it through and it says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house or his wife or his male servant, etc. And at first glance, we look at that and it, quite frankly, doesn't seem all that horrible, does it? Especially when we look up the page or turn the page and we see, You shall not murder. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not commit adultery. We think, well, coveting, it's not exactly that horrible? It doesn't leave horrible effects on other people. If someone murders someone else, there's an entire family that grieves because of it. If someone steals from someone else, someone is defrauded and at a loss. But coveting, it sort of all happens inside. It doesn't really affect anyone. Perhaps this is what the media means when it speaks of victimless crime. After all, it all happens inside the coveter. And it also doesn't have ugly effects, usually, for our children. When we break the Sixth Commandment in anger, shouting, and rage, that affects our children, doesn't it? If we lie in front of our children and they see it, that affects them as well. But coveting, again, it's something that's in the heart. It's something that they can't see. We can cover it up pretty well. They're young. They'll get used to it. So at first glance, we look and we say, well, what's really the big deal about this? But the second glance reveals much more, I think. If we look at it, there is a big, huge fullness to this command. Notice that this command, just for sheer words, is longer than many of the other commands. 
Also notice the repetition. You shall not covet. You shall not covet. Twice it's repeated for emphasis. Murder is not repeated twice, nor is false witness. Nor even is you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. There is a repetition here that catches our ear and our eye. But there's something else. You may be wondering, looking at this, why the laundry list? Moses, why is, why is it said that we're not supposed to covet houses or, or wives or servants or female servants or oxes or donkeys or anything? If you look at this, we'll see that we're told not to covet seven things. Now, that number seven should mean something to you in the Scriptures. It's when the Scripture speaks of the seven spirits of God. It's not speaking of seven spirits individually floating around. It's speaking of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, in all His completeness and fullness. Seven is the number of completion or perfection. You see, God wants this command to be all-encompassing. He wants it to include everything that we can think of. And yet, it's even more comprehensive at the end, because there is a grab bag, as it were. After listing all of these things, don't covet anything that is your neighbor's. Now, why would God do that? Parents, any clues? It would never happen, for example, that there would be this list. No one would ever covet, say, a fish, his neighbor's fish, and say, well, you know, a fish isn't really an animal. Not exactly. So I guess it's okay to covet a fish. Perhaps something more serious. Well, you know, I shouldn't covet my neighbor's wife, but his fiance, she's not really a wife yet. So maybe I can covet that. You see, our Lord wants us to feel the weight of this command. To feel it at all, its comprehensiveness. The third thing that we see here is that it is a community type of sin. You see, this is not just a personal morality. There's no such thing as a private sin. We cannot keep it inside. Because what coveting is about is putting ourselves above our neighbor. Isn't it? My neighbor has a boat. Why does he have a boat? I should have a boat. I should have that boat. Why should he have it and I not have it? What makes him better? I'm better than he is. Do you see the train of thought? It doesn't just happen with boats. It happens with jobs. It happens with 401Ks. It happens with lawns. It happens with everything. We put ourselves above our neighbors. You see, that is the danger of coveting. Because desire in and of itself is not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to want a wife. Or to want an ox. I don't know where you put one nowadays. But it's not a bad thing to want one. What it is a bad thing to do is to want someone else's. To say, I deserve it and they don't. This is the nature of the command and its broadness. But also we see here that God looks at the heart in seeing that this is a heart sin. You see, the law is about more than simple morality and outward conformity. In the church today, we need to hear that. Because, you see, if we go out those doors and go to any one of a number of neighborhoods, we will see the law of God trampled 
in an outward visible form, won't we? We see idolatry. We see adultery. We see violence. We see dishonesty. We see it everywhere and it is bold and plain to see. We oftentimes look around at our neighborhoods, our neighbors in the news and say, what are they thinking? How can they be so brash? But you see, when we look just there, we tend to excuse ourselves from sin, don't we? Well, we're not obvious sinners. We're not like those people down the street. We're not like those people not in the church. And we're tempted to think that we have it all together. And oftentimes, this is the focus of conservative or religious thought. Merely on hedging about outward conformity to the law. When in reality, the true focus of the law, the true focus of being sanctified, is upon the heart. You see, Paul said the sum of the law is love. And if we think about it, that's the exact opposite of coveting, isn't it? Coveting is putting my interest above someone else's, saying I should have what they have. Love, the sum of the law, is putting their interest above mine. It's self-sacrifice. You see, coveting cuts us right to the core of our being. We may be able to hide it, but we can't excuse it. Because, you see, we cannot have true obedience without heart obedience. We have to begin with the heart. If you're here today, and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, if you are not united to Him, if you do not believe that He has died and has risen again from the dead to atone for sin, then please, don't try and stop coveting. You won't succeed. You won't make it a day. You don't need better behavior. You need a better heart. And it is so with the Christian as well. When we seek to sanctify, to be sanctified, when we seek to mortify our sins, we must do it starting with the heart, knowing that our heart is renewed by the Lord Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and that outward benefits flow from that. This is the heart sin. But it's more than that. It's also a dangerous sin. Why is it a dangerous sin? Well, the first reason is from its very nature that we've just been speaking of. That is, that it is hard to spot. It doesn't happen, obviously, in front of everyone. As a matter of fact, oftentimes, we can be the last ones to really understand that we're coveting. We just go right along and we don't even think about it. I was just driving up Mason to come here. This is how fresh coveting is. I drove down right before you get to Kingsland. And there were a few yellow signs that said, bike sale this weekend. And what went through my mind was, ooh, bike sale. My bike's old. I could use a new bike. And then after a minute it kicked in, you haven't ridden your bike in two years. That's why it's old. Why do you need a new bike? But, oh, it's on sale. Bike sale. I need a bike. This is as I am preparing to come to preach on coveting. You see, you probably had the same experience with something else this weekend. It is so dangerous. It's so insidious. It gets us because it begins as a whisper. 
not a shout. You see, the devil doesn't rage at us when we covet. He doesn't yell, you Christian, be a sinner. He says, wouldn't you really like a better house? Wouldn't you really like a better car? Car, yeah. I like a car. Maybe it would give me better gas mileage. Okay. It begins softly and gains momentum. It's very hard to spot. It's also easy to deflect. There's no obvious proof. Well, you lied. No, I didn't. Well, you said this. That's not true. Three people saw you. Oh. Well, you dishonored the Lord's Day. No, I didn't. Wait a minute. Here's the film of you on Sunday. Oh. You stole my pen. No, I didn't. Well, then why is it in your pocket? Oh. You coveted. No, I didn't. Where's the proof? It's all internal. It's easy to deflect. It's easy to hide. There's no obvious harm. Where did, who's hurt by me? You said I coveted? Show me somebody that's hurt. Where is anybody? Nowhere to be found. It's also a respectable sin that makes it hard to spot. It's not like other sins, is it? As a matter of fact, it's often more shameful to admit the sin of coveting than to commit the sin of coveting. We're embarrassed. We're good church-going Christians. We're not supposed to sin. We don't want to have to confess our sins. We don't want to have to say that coveting is a part of our lives. This is a real challenge for the church. And as God's servant, and as one who covets, I need to tell you, you need to repent of that. You need to repent of being more concerned with respectability than holiness. Do not keep that in. Find someone to speak to about this sin. Find someone that you can hold accountable and they can hold you accountable. Don't worry more about respectability than being like Jesus. Because that's, after all, what holiness is. It's being like Jesus. Well, it's a dangerous sin because it's a hard-to-spot sin, but it's also what the Puritans have called a sin-producing sin. You see, coveting is the root of other sins. Coveting gets the bandwagon rolling. It's the push to the go-kart to go downhill. It doesn't stop there. After all, James puts this very succinctly in James chapter 1. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. You see, covetousness leads to sin, and sin leads to death. David coveted a woman. He coveted another man's wife. Did he stop at the Tenth Commandment? No. He then broke the Sixth Commandment by murdering Uriah. Did it stop there? No. He then broke the Ninth Commandment, seeking to cover it up and lie. You see, this is what sin does. You can never have just a little bit of sin. Sin is like the salesman that puts his foot in the door, and you cannot get the door shut. And eventually he leans on the door and leans on the door and it opens up. Don't give a wedge or an opportunity for sin. Coveting is a hard to spot sin. 
It's a sin-producing sin, but it also leads to dangerous consequences. Coveting is what leads to war, the Bible tells us. You wonder why there's war in the world? You wonder why we can't give peace a chance? It's not because we don't wear pink. It's not because we don't have good foreign policy. It's because we're sinners and we covet. James says this explicitly in chapter 4. He says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. That's why there's war today. It's because of coveting. We want things. I'll just give you one example to dwell on of the dangerous consequences of coveting. Coveting was the prime reason for World War II. In that case, amongst nations and rulers, hundreds of millions dead because of coveting, wanting, having to have, at any cost. This is a dangerous sin. But not only does it lead to war on earth, it leads to war in our soul. Because you see, coveting is soul-killing. This not-so-obvious Perhaps not so dangerous to our mind, sin is pointed out again and again in the Bible as the cause of what makes men go to hell. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 5, For you know this, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, second time he's used that combination, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. No covetous man, no man who is marked by coveting, no man who does not seek to mortify coveting will see the kingdom of God. We've seen examples of how it affects one's soul. We saw it in Ahab, didn't we? Just a few weeks ago. He coveted a vineyard. Had to have it. Didn't matter what else he had, even though he had more land than anyone else. Didn't matter that it was someone else's. Didn't matter that he had no right to it. He wanted it. So therefore, he had to go and get it. Coveting is also the sin that pushed Judas over the edge. Do you remember what got Judas to betray our Lord? It was wanting 30 pieces of silver. There are all other reasons within his mind and his being and God's decree, but what pushed him over the edge was the offer of a little bit of cash that he didn't have and he wanted. What a dangerous, dangerous sin. But it's also an idolatrous sin. Because it is a sin against providence. You see, what coveting is, is it's anger at God's providence to others. This happens to all of us. How many of you kids are doing school, and I don't care where you do it, if it's in private school or home school or public school, and you find out your brother or your sister or your friend got a better grade than you? I should have got that 95. Why did I have to get this stinking 89? I want their grade. You know what that is? That's coveting. You can covet grades. You can covet birthday presents. You can covet gifts. Why can't I throw a baseball like he does? How come I can't pitch like he does? 
How come I can't drive like she does? How come I can't remember things like they do? It's not just kids, though. Why did he get that promotion? Why did he get that raise? I should have got that raise. Why does that family have such an easy time having children? And we don't. Why can't I have children? Why do they have boys and I have girls? You see, it comes at us at every level of our lives. Satan uses every opportunity. And what he's saying is, God really hasn't taken care of you. Your lot in life is really not what you deserve. God really must be a bit slow. He doesn't realize that what you need is what is a better grade. Either that or God's not in control. He wishes you had a better grade, but oops, he can't handle it. You see, coveting says God doesn't know better and he's not powerful. Does that sound like a light, trifling sin? No. And you see why it's so important. Because covenanting cuts against where our true hope should be. Because is our true hope in a 401k or a promotion or graduating from a certain school or learning a certain skill? Or is our hope in a father who knows our very frame and cares for us and provides for us and has shed the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that we might be with Him forever. Where is your hope? Coveting wants your hope to be in things and yourself. And God says, don't take your eyes off of me to put them on measly things. Focus on me. Because you see, coveting is not only a sin against providence, it's a sin against God Himself. It is idolatry. Colossians chapter 3 says, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Isn't that an interesting choice by Paul? He could have said, well, murder, which is idolatry, because you're assuming the prerogative of God that you control life. He could have said lying, which is idolatry, because you are saying that you control truth and God doesn't. But he doesn't focus there. He focuses on coveting. Because coveting is about desiring something more than God. It gets the people of God in spectacular trouble when it shows up. Do you remember Achan brought disaster upon the entire Israelite army? Remember what the reason was? He wanted some things. And he took some things. And he hid them. And it led to the defeat of the army of the nation of Israel. It led to the destruction of his whole household. Because he wanted some things. It's what drives the world. Do you remember Haman in the book of Esther? You remember that great enemy of the Jews who did all of these plans to try and destroy the Jews and Mordecai, do you remember what really drove Haman? It wasn't that the Bible was available. It wasn't that the, the Jews held to universal, unchanging truth. 
It was that Haman saw that Mordecai had some things that he didn't think he should. He says, why does Mordecai prosper? Because he prospers, I hate him. And I hate the Jews. And I hate everyone. And I'm going to destroy them. You see, he looked. He coveted. Coveting is an idolatrous sin because it leads us away from God. Haman was never further from God than when he coveted. This shouldn't surprise us because Eve, in Genesis 3, chapter 6, saw that the fruit was desirable. Very same Hebrew word for covenant. You see, Eve coveted the fruit. She coveted the knowledge. She coveted the independence. And it destroyed her. This is the type of sin that can rear itself in our midst with all its danger, with all its consequences, as we seek to cover it over with layers of smiles and good intentions, never seeking to get to the heart of the problem. So the question then comes to us, how do we fight this? How do we defeat covetousness so that we can become more like our Lord Jesus Christ? In two ways. First, by self-reflection. And then second, by God-reflection. Self-reflection and God-reflection. The first part of self-reflection is that we must have a conscious effort. You remember we said that covetousness is a hard-to-spot sin because we're often not even aware that we're doing it. You know, we go very easily from, ooh, what's that? That's a nice cat... That's a Cadillac. Ooh, that's a blue Cadillac. Ooh, that's a nice blue Cadillac. Ooh, I wish I had a Cadillac. Very quickly just goes down the path. We need to be conscious in our effort to wrest our minds away from that. Whether it's cars, or clothes, or computers, or phones, whatever it is, we need to make a conscious effort. We also need to focus and self-reflect on our own contentment. Not just the fact that we are blessed, although we all are. We are all among, the poorest among us, are among the richest people to ever inhabit the earth. For century upon century upon century, it would be a very, very handful few that could eat fresh food anytime they wanted. Or have heat. Or to be cooled. But we need to think about our particular lot in life. That God has given to us a providence. That our lives are not like they are by mistake. It's because a loving Father who cares for us desires us to be in these circumstances. For His will and for His glory. And so as we reflect upon ourselves, we need to reflect upon our own contentment and what we have and how the Lord has blessed us. Now, that can be very difficult, can't it? Especially in trying circumstances. But we need to be, when we're tempted, perhaps to say, I wish my child were healthy like all the other children. Perhaps we should think and say, I'm so glad the Lord has blessed me with a child. There's so many people that don't have children. Or have already had children taken from them. To see the blessings that God gives to us. 
We need to be aware as we self-reflect upon the dangers that are around us. And the dangers are around us every time we turn on a television or a radio or a computer that blares, you need this. You should want this. Why can't you have that? We need to be aware of that as we self-reflect. To know that these messages are coming our way. So that we can deal with them. We need to have this kind of self-reflection. But we finally need to have God-reflection as well. We need to think about the fact that spiritual blessings are better than physical material blessings. You all know in your hearts, because I've spoken to you, that we are more blessed to sit in horrible, uncomfortable chairs in a not-so-well-air-conditioned, too-hot-too-cold gym, well, cafetorium, than churches that have ornate, beautiful buildings where there's deadness inside. Don't you? Apply that same principle to your life. So your house isn't big enough. So you haven't saved as much for retirement as you wanted to. Is God working in your life? Is He working in your marriage? Is He working in your children? Those kind of blessings are well beyond anything this world can provide. God reflection points us to desire the right things. Communion with God. Blessings from God. You see, as we reflect upon God and what He brings to us, coveting goes by the wayside. Finally and most importantly, the way in which we can defeat coveting by God reflection is by focusing on Jesus Christ. Because you see, Jesus Christ is the anti-coveter. You see, Jesus Christ is the one who had every right to say, this is mine and I'm going to keep it. He didn't even need to want someone else's because he had everything. And yet Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that he gave it all up for us. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, held on to. He became incarnate that he might serve us. You see, if we look upon the Lord Jesus Christ, all of a sudden coveting seems pretty silly. Because we see... His attitude and His blessing. And then we see all the stores of blessings that all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. So this week, as images bombard you, as conversations come in front of you, as you, like me, walk by or drive by the yellow bite signs, encourage one another to be content. Encourage one another to look to the Lord Jesus. And encourage each other by describing all of the blessings that you see that God has laid out on others. If we do that, and if we kill, not just hurt, but kill coveting in our lives, God will pour out rich blessings upon us. We will have closeness of relationship with Him that perhaps we did not think was possible. And we will become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And isn't that what the whole Christian life is about? Becoming like Jesus. 
Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You, O Lord, that You seek to destroy the sin in our life. We pray, Lord, even now, that You would mortify coveting in our lives, that You would help us to see that we are so provided for by You. Lord, You are indeed a blessing to us. We ask that You would remind us of this daily. In Jesus' name, Amen.